Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come in. Come, come, close the door, please. We are into the horror of the drear season, humidity and temperatures oozing into the mid-90s. Well, it's only for another two months or so. And that, of course, is out there, on the streets, where the wild things roam, stagger, sweat, pant. In here, the air is cool and dry, and terrors of a fictive nature await our shivers. I hope you enjoyed our recent two-part rendering of Algernon Blackwood's The Willows. I did. As I said to one of the people who commented on it online, Blackwood was someone I... Oh, look, yes. Grab some treats from the bags and bowls, pour a cooling drink, settle with a chum. There's plenty of room. Now, where was I? Yes, Blackwood. Blackwood was a writer to whom I was introduced as a... Well, as a mere tot... I forgot about him in that time of life when my nervous system required some more strident shocks than he delivered. I came back to him several years ago when I realized that he was just a damn good craftsman and a writer of terrors par excellence. I've come back to authors like Blackwood and M.R. Jaynes et al. recently and within the last few years, writers who do not try to blather our gorge or create ever more growlsome beasties, but who let the creepiness of the world seep into us as we read or listen and wander the environments in which they're cast. I love stories where where we barely see the critter, the ghost, the dark, whatever, where we're given details and hints and must create the terror from our own imagination and memories. 
I was raised by radio. And we'll have more of Blackwood later. And we'll have more of H.P. Lovecraft, and he, very soon. August, to be specific. Bring your anoraks and mucklucks to the nook. Ah, yes, Art, Art, turn round. Gaze upon the brownie of Blednoch. That's Edward Atkinson Hornell's rendering of him, at least. Edward Atkinson Hornell, 1864 to 1933, was a Scottish painter of landscapes, flowers, foliage, and children, and sometimes of creatures of the fantastic. He was born in Australia, Scottish parents who moved back to Scotland when Edward was two. He was brought up and lived practically all his life there. He studied art for three years in Edinburgh and for two years in Antwerp. In 1890, Hornell collaborated with George Henry on the painting The Druids Bringing in the Mistletoe, which you can get in a 1,000-piece jigsaw puzzle. And if you've ever seen it, you know how that must drive people mad. The work is in polychrome and gold and features a procession of druidic priests bearing the sacred mistletoe. Hornell used texture effects produced by loading and scraping, roughening, smoothing, and staining. Well, look him up. Take a look at his work. I think you'll enjoy it. The Brownie, well, in a few weeks we'll have William Nicholson's poem, The Brownie of Blednock, and all will be revealed. I will leave it that brownies, while good, honest, hard-working fey folk are not to be trifled with. And if you want them to continue to labor for you, never give them clothes. Sound familiar? Well, just know that J.K. Rowling did her homework. While English brownies are homebodies and live in unused parts of the houses they work in, a Scottish brownie, or an urisk, typically lives outside, in streams and waterfalls. Nice, yes? And now, while you're on TalesToTerrify.com looking at the brownie of Bloodnock, let me to the weekly urgings, please. Commit a few coins of whatever realm in which you live to us. Do so by a one-time donation or by subscribing and thus paying for this otherwise free service because you are a really nice person and want to keep the Nook and the Starport and Crime City and Project Pulp open for a long, long time. Also, stop by Facebook and like us, go to iTunes and give us a fine rating, and, well, let's see, that is that, and now we're into... fiction. We begin tonight with Kate Gardner's The Scratch of an Old Record. Kate Gardner is a British horror and fantastical author with over a hundred published stories to her credit, several of which appear in her 2010 collection Strange Men in Pinstripe Suits from Strange Publications. She's also the author of two novellas, Theater of Curious Acts from Hadley Rill Books, 2011, and Barbed Wire Hearts from Delirium Books, also in 2011. She is currently working on a novel. Now, settle down. 
and listen for the scratch of an old record. The scratch of a needle on vinyl echoed along the upstairs hallway and crept into Grace's bedroom. The noise drew her up as if she was a marionette, and its tune the puppeteer. Her fingers brushed against the peeling wallpaper. The song echoed from the looking-glass that stood at the top of the stairs. Gracie rubbed her eyes. The grotesque collection of onlookers that peered out of the mirror rubbed theirs in reply. Then they threw back their heads and laughed. She pressed her nose to the glass and blinked at the anomaly. Did you ever get trapped in a dream? I did. I did, a man said. Gracie twirled around fast. It would not have mattered if her movements were slow. The man would have waited. I did. I'm dreaming, she said, blinking, though she knew she wasn't. This was not the first anomaly she had encountered. There's something not right about me, she thought, and she was right. As if he had stepped from the visiting Knoxville travelling carnival, the man in the mirror had all the danger of a roustabout and traces of the clown. Remnants of white paste powdered his cheekbones, and a dab of red paint circled his lips. The song stopped. The song restarted. Scratch, scratch, scratch. Did a dream ever refuse to let you go? He looked at her, as if she were a curiosity, and she at him. I'm considering it, he said. The record caught mid-groove and repeated, Let go, let go, let go. Within the mirror, the crowd mouthed words she didn't understand. There was something familiar about the mob, something she didn't want to remember. She returned to her bedroom and climbed back beneath crisp white sheets. If she forgot about them, they would go away as other things had done. Sunlight poured through the bedroom window. Gracie rubbed sleep from her eyes and yawned. Something about the mirror that hung at the end of the hall caused her to stop. But then Gracie shook her head and moved on. She decided it would be best to have a bellyful of breakfast and a head powdered by coffee before she faced herself and the thoughts nagging at the back of her mind. Gracie felt old. She slammed wheat bread into the toaster. Then, when it popped up, she hummed as she buttered her toast. Did you ever get trapped in a dream? I did. If she couldn't place the song, it would irk her all day. 
She hummed, tapped out a beat on the kitchen worktop, hummed some more, and then she stopped. Even though she lived alone, she knew someone else was in the house. Did you ever get trapped in a dream? A voice called from the hallway. Then, as if the needle was stuck on a record, it scratched. You did, you did, you did. Gracie pinched her arm. Ouch! Deep breaths did nothing to calm her down. She opened the fridge and poured half a bottle of water down her throat. The other half dribbled down her chin. She refused to call out her trademark. Hello, is someone there? Her slippers flapped against the floorboards. There was no one there. No one but her. Her scream broke the silence. Not yet fueled by caffeine, her reflection loomed unforgiving. Gracie sure did look old. How did you get to be forty? Didn't seem possible. Especially as she recalled someone saying she would never grow old. She would be like Peter Pan forever. And if she wanted, her friends would never grow up too. But they had. And they had left. The phone trilled in the kitchen. She picked it up. Hey, Gracie, just calling to wish you a happy Halloween, okay? Her brother called to someone in the background. I'm on the phone to Gracie. I'm not... Oh, for Christ, you don't understand. The sound of a palm slamming against the phone. A second of hold music and then... Got to run. The gang is itching. With that, he was gone. Ray Hartshorn, ex-inhabitant of 404 Wiley Road, Grievous Tien... Didn't he grow up big, smart, and surrounded? Oh, how she wished they had never grown up. Yet she was sure it was because of something she had done, or not done, that he had. My mama says this isn't your house and you don't belong here. My mama says you should move out of the neighbourhood. The child had a name, as all children do, but Gracie could not remember it. Gracie pulled the wad of envelopes out of her mailbox. I'm guessing your mama's beak is just as long as your pigtails. My mama says we're going to live in your house when the Rialtas put up the sign. If you could ask your mama to hold her breath while she's waiting, I'd be ever so grateful. My mama says you won't have candy tonight. Your mama is right. Gracie didn't dislike children. Ray, her brother, had three girls and two boys, and she liked them well enough the one time they met. In fact, she'd asked them if they would like to be small forever. That was when Ray's wife had packed Gracie's suitcase and thrown her out. The pigtailed child pushed and squinted. I have decorations, candy, and plenty of scare, Gracie said, sighing, and you're most welcome to knock. Be glad of the diversion, 
Gracie looked up at the clapboard house she had called home for, well, not quite forty years. The window sparkled. The porch brushed free of dirt, dust and leaves. And the mimosa trees, fern-like leaves, were a good, healthy shade of green. So why did it look empty? And why did she think that behind its white boards, a record scratched? My mamma says you're touched, the child said, rotating her fingers at her temple. In that, your mamma might be right. A pair of muddy boots stood on the front porch. Gracie circled them. The mud was wet and thick, yet the week had been as dry as dust. No footsteps led up to the boots, as if someone had come along and placed them there for the hell of it. She scratched her head and looked out across the road to where the pigtailed child was playing with a doll. Her neighbours, the Del Roscoes and the Schreibers, opened the door of a fire-red Oldsmobile and climbed inside. Dirk Schreiber looked over and waved. Sylvia, his wife, pulled his arm down and hustled him into the car. Dirk had wanted to be Peter Pan. Gracie turned to re-enter the house. Behind her, someone stomped hard on the porch. She turned around and fell back against the door with shock. As if he had been there all along, a man stood in the boots. He brushed white dust off the shoulders of his brown suit. I know you, he said. His hands smeared his lips, leaving a red trail. A leaflet flapped in his fingers and he held it out to her. I don't go to carnivals, sorry. That was a lie. She fumbled for the doorknob. It turned beneath her clown hands and she stepped over the threshold. Blood pounded through veins. The thrump, thrump, thrump resounded in her ears. Fat fingers reached over her shoulder and pasted the leaflet to her door. Hey! She spun around. The man was gone, but the boots remained. Hey! As the fiery Oldsmobile sped past, with Dirk Schreiber banging his fists against the window, two women, dressed in grey, their hair tied up in efficient buns, turned onto her path. The women smiled up at Gracie and climbed the porch steps in sync. The taller of the two picked up the boots by her fingertips and then threw them out onto the front yard. Hello, the small woman said. We are from Ladies Limited. I am Cecilia. I'm not interested, thank you. The two women looked at each other, smiled and then returned their grins to Gracie. Hello, the taller of the women said. We are from Ladies Limited. I am Audrey. A black shoe, sensible and shiny, caught in the door as Gracie tried to close it. If they said hello again, she was going to scream. 
I neither want to buy, subscribe, or bow down before the Almighty. Did you ever get trapped in a dream? What? Gracie said. You did, Cecilia said. Well, not exactly a dream, but it's like one, isn't it? Everything's a bit too unreal. Get your foot out of my door. It did not move. Gracie's startled face reflected in the patent leather. Sweat ran down her back, betrayed at her forehead and breasts. Who are you? she sighed. What are you? We are from Ladies Limited. Gee, and isn't that a great help to me? Formerly Silver Friends Incorporated. We've met, Audrey said. We haven't. Gracie pushed the door forward, and as the shoe moved back, she snapped the door shut. She ran the bolts across and ignored the hand that rapped at the door and the face that peered in through the square of glass. Gracie Hartshorn is still in there, Audrey said. I know, Cecilia replied. She should have left long ago. The brush of water from the kitchen faucets drowned out their voices. Grace's hands tensed around the sink as the water swirled down the plug hole. Her breath issued in shallow gasps. Sometimes they come to get you. The man stood in her kitchen doorway. Sometimes you can't escape. Get out! Gracie picked up the nearest thing to hand, a spatula, and threw it at the man. Get out of my house! His painted smile lopsided. He cocked his head to the right. You don't go with them. A fist thumped at the kitchen window. Miss Gracie Hartthorne, are you in there? The women cut their hands to the glass and tried to peer into the kitchen. They looked like overzealous cosmetic sellers. You don't go with them, he repeated, and then faded. We can see you, Gracie Hartshorn, they sighed in unison. Are you Rialtas? A small familiar voice queried. Only my mama says this is our house. My mama wants it back real bad. We know, dear. Your mama sent us a letter. Now scoot, scoot. Gracie opened her kitchen window. As she did so, Cecilia clapped and performed a short tap dance. Leave the child alone. Old habits, dear, Audrey said, smiling. She leaned in through the window. You really shouldn't get attached, but I understand. We understand. What do you understand? the pigtail child asked. Audrey and Cecilia ignored her. Stomp on their feet, Gracie called through the window to the child, and a giggle unlike any she'd experienced in years, bubbled. Pinch their ankles. Go on, Mandy. There. That was the child's name. Mandy Littleworth, daughter of Bobby. Gracie shivered. Did a dream ever trap you? It did. Again, a needle scratched against the vinyl. Only, it wasn't a dream. It was horrific and real and she would not remember it. She was home. This was life. This was it. There had never been anything 
or anyone else. Who are you, Gracie Hartshorn? Seemed to be the silliest question anyone ever asked. Why, she is Gracie Hartsthorn, of course, Mandy Littleworth replied. Audrey kicked Mandy in the shin, and as the child fell down, she picked up Gracie's broom and began to brush the child off the porch. Mandy's cheeks puffed scarlet, and she let out an ear-piecing squeal. With a final flourish, Audrey brushed the child down the steps and into the yard. Gracie fumbled with the doorknob, her fingers sliding against the metal. Brushing a child out into the street, outrageous, diabolical. The door jerked open. The two women stood on the other side of it, with their hands clasped to their chests. They were more sinister than sideshow freaks at a carnival. Mandy now stood on the shaded side of the street and clutched a rag doll. The Oldsmobile drove past her. Hello, twin smiles. Jewel dialogue. We are from Ladies Limited, formerly Silver Friends Incorporated. I am Audrey, and I am Cecilia. Something disturbed the air at her shoulder, causing Gracie to turn. And she is not buying, he said. The door slammed, and the bolts drew across and Gracie had not moved. She blinked, then blinked some more, and ignored the cold chill that washed over her skin. Where do you run to when they have surrounded you? Get out of my house, she spat. Your house? Ray should have married you, Gracie. But he couldn't, because he didn't think you were real. Get out! As she tried to open the door, her fingers fumbled and her skin scraped against the bolts. But he couldn't. Fingernails wrapped on the other side of the door. The ladies. But he knew. Her palm thump, thump, thumped the bolts open, hot breath at her ear as a hand curled over hers. He whispered, you're not real anymore. Through the door, the ladies called. We have a petition for your removal, Gracie, signed by Bobby, Dirk, Carl, Louise and Ray. You're very lucky, Ladies Limited incepted. Now we have the truth of it, he said. Why open a door when you are afraid of what stands behind it? Yet how could she not, when the questions pounded, and a small part niggled and begged attention? Grey suits, neat grey hair, and grey skin greeted. Despite the regimented dullness, their smiles sparkled. Hello, we are from ladies. Can we skip the introductions? Cecilia held out a scroll of pale blue paper, tied with a yellow ribbon. Gracie unfurled the scroll. Donald Duck! She half smiled and traced her finger over the image. I remember this paper. Ray loved the cartoons. 
He used to creep down in the night to see me, and we would draw our own. At first I had to hide when his parents found him. We, the undersigned, petitioned the person who sent her to remove Gracie from 404 Wiley Road, Grievous, Tien. Bobby Hartshorn, Dirk Schreiber, Carl Del Rosco, Louise Bartwell, Ray Hartshorn, September 4th, 1950. Twenty-seven years ago, she said. When they were twelve and thirteen. When I was thirteen. If you like. The door slammed shut. The bolts ricocheted, and there he stood, grinning. Gracie did not move. The paper burned up in her fingers. The child was right. She was loop-the-loop crazy. The record began its scratch, scratch, scratch. He opened his mouth, but the words issued from the gramophone, fast, upbeat, breathless. You need to come back to us, to the carnival, now, today, before it is too late, too late, too late, too... Gracie Hartshorn, don't you listen to that thing? Twin faces pressed against the hall window. Don't you be foolish. I don't go to carnival, she said. It's forbidden. Who forbid it? I did, she whispered. Long ago. The phone in the kitchen trilled, startling Gracie. Hello, Grace... Greasy Hartshorn speaking. I am so sorry. Ray? Gracie, it was such a long time ago. How did you know? We were children. They convinced me. I mean, thirteen, Gracie. Thirteen is far too old to have an imaginary friend. Even a friend that others can see. You became too real, and we didn't know what to do. We wanted to grow up, and you insisted that we wouldn't. We were frightened. Grace's knees buckled, and the cord yanked downwards as she sat in a corner of the kitchen and hugged her knees to her chest. Don't, don't be silly, Ray. When it didn't work... We, no, I decided you should stay. When Mama died, Bobby and I couldn't stay there with you, Gracie. It wouldn't have been right. How do you know there are people here, Ray? Dirk phoned me. He said... He said... Something wasn't right. I'm so sorry, Gracie. The carnival man cut off the call. She wiped her hand across her nose and mopped up her tears with her sleeve. He picked her up as if she were a doll, a nothing. Don't you go with him, Gracie Hartshoin, a clipped voice demanded. We are from Ladies Limited. We have many people for you to befriend at the Silverfield Retirement Home. Lonely old ladies need company too, Gracie. 
Help them, Gracie. Her world faded to orange. Gracie didn't like carnivals. She remembered one from way back when she was small, frightened, and alone. When she had looked pretty much like the girl with the red curls and buck teeth did. The child stood beside the gang of nasty children and couldn't find a way into their group. Over here, Gracie whispered and beckoned to the child. Over here. The little girl, who could be no more than eight, shuffled her feet in the sawdust and headed towards Gracie and her stripy lollipop. Here, this is for you, she said. What's your name? Alice Jane de Wattle. Well, Alice Jane, would you like to be just like Peter Pan and his lost boys and never grow up? The girl shook her head. No, being seven is rotten. That's right, it is, Gracie replied. Now, run along and grow up as fast as you can. A few more words. Miss Kate Gardner has cited Robert Shearman, Joe Hill, Neil Gaiman, Gina Rinaldi, John Wyndham, and the pseudonymous Lemony Snicket as her favorite writers. Of her, Publishers Weekly has said she is a rising purveyor of high literary strangeness. Well, you may keep up with her. At her website, www.kategardner.net. That's C A T E G A R D N E R dot net. I'll put that on our homepage. So thank you, Kate. We await more literary strangeness from you. The scratch of an old record was read for us tonight by Kim Lakin Smith. Kim is a writer-narrator who, from time to time, reads to us here in the Nook. She has a background in performance and is a regular guest speaker at writing workshops and conventions. She's also the author of Tourniquet, Tales from the Renegade City, by Imanian Press in 2007. In 2011, Newcon Press published her Cyber Circus. In 2012, her young adult novella Queen Rat was published by Murky Depths. Her fantasy and science fiction have appeared in Black Static, Interzone, Celebration, Myth Understandings, Further Conflicts, Pandemonium, Stories of the Apocalypse, and others. In 2009, her Johnny and Emmy Lou Get Married was shortlisted for the BSFA Short Story Award. She is at http colon slash slash www KimLakin-Smith.com. That's K-I-M-L-A-K-I-N-Smith.com. I'll put that on the Tales to Terrify page, too. So, thank you, Kim. 
Our second tale tonight is a nerve-wracking little chiller by Christopher Golden, entitled Breathe My Name. Christopher Golden is an award-winning, best-selling author of horror, fantasy, and suspense. He was born in Massachusetts, USA, on July 15. Happy birthday, Chris. And he still lives in the old colony with his family. He's a graduate of Tufts University. Chris has written short fiction, novels, comic books, and video games, and co-written the online animated series Ghosts of Albion with actress-writer-director Amber Benson from Buffy fame. He wrote the introduction to the now-collectible 200-only copy slipcased edition of Joe Hill's short story collection, 20th Century Ghosts. <sighs> okay. Let us all take a deep breath, because here is Christopher Golden's Breathe My Name. There came a time when Tommy Betts thought that they'd all have been better off if the mine had collapsed on top of them, crushing them under tons of stone and earth and coal. Better that, by far, than dying a little bit with each breath of poison air. Better that than seeing the fear in the faces of men he'd looked up to his entire life and the desperation in his own father's eyes. As a boy, Tommy had told his dad to be careful worried that if they dug too deep, the miners might break through into hell. His mother had still been making him go to church in Wheeling every Sunday back then, and hell presented a special terror for him. His father and the other miners would come back with their clothes caked with black dust, faces painted with the same crap that filled their saliva when they spit, and Tommy worried that they might one day encounter demons down there. At 18... Tommy had gone into the mine for the first time and discovered that the church had a pretty simple version of hell and what waited. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. In Shaft 39 was a different sort of damnation altogether. In the seven years since... He'd learned that even the bravest man discovered claustrophobia in the deep underground, with the walls pressing in and the weight of a mountain hanging above him. The slightest tremor might be the end of days. Two miles into the heart of the mountain, they might as well have been floating in space. That first trip down, Tommy had understood that no matter how many precautions might be taken, the miners were there on their own. Rick Nilsson, one of his father's drinking buddies, had said the life of a miner was like playing Russian roulette every day for the rest of your life. You could find the chamber with the bullet at any time, without warning. For Tommy and his dad, Al, and for Nilsson and Jerry Tolland and Rob McGilveen and Randy Wisolowski and a dozen other guys, it happened on the 10th of April. It was raining, but no one complained about the black storm clouds or the soaking they got on the walk up from the parking lot. Underground, it didn't matter what the weather was like outside. In fact, as far as Tommy was concerned, the shittier the day, the better. It was the beautiful days when he wished he could be at home with Melissa, tossing a ball in the backyard with their boy Jake, doing a little barbecue. Jakey was only five, but sometimes Tommy let him flip the burgers. Stormy days, though, he didn't mind the mines so much. At least it was dry down there. At the entrance to the mine, they waited for Wisolowski to show up. The guy was always fucking late and almost always hung over when he did show up. But Hansen, the shift supervisor, wouldn't let them go down until the whole shift had arrived. They were supposed to be in there by 7.30. At a quarter to eight, just when Hansen was about to let them go down and dock Wisolowski for the whole day whether he showed up or not... The guy pulled into the parking lot. <laughs> standing out here in the rain waiting on this asshole. Tommy's dad muttered, standing next to him. I'm in no hurry to get down there, Tommy replied. His father grunted. <sighs> Ain't the point. Tommy didn't say anything to that. There was never any arguing with the old man. Even his eyes seemed chiseled out of stone, made of the same stuff they were digging into. He had a scar on his left temple from a fight years back when one of his crew had gone stir-crazy down in the mine. Al Betts had been the one to finally subdue the head case, but not before the guy tried bashing his skull in. The rest of the crew looked up to Al. He wasn't the kind of man who started shit, but he'd be the one to put an end to it. Hansen walked into their midst, hands up to get their attention. All right, listen up. Wisolowski, you paying attention? 
With the rain streaming down his slicker and spotting his glasses, the supervisor looked like an alien species standing amongst the miners. Wisolowski nodded, red-rimmed eyes anxious. This is the last time you're late, Randy, Hansen told him. I'm saying this in front of everyone, so nobody can complain that you weren't warned. Every time you're late, you cost us money. You're all going down 25 minutes later than scheduled. Multiply that by 18, and you're looking at seven and a half hours of accumulated time. So the next time you're late, I'm docking you, and only you, for the total accumulated time you've delayed the entire crew. And if there's a time after that, you'll be fired. Nobody said a word. They stood in the rain and waited until Hansen sent them on their way. The whole crew climbed aboard the mantrip, the cable car that lowered the men into the mine and drew them back up again later. Only when they were on their way down into the ground with the lights flickering around them and the mantrip's wheels squeaking on the metal rails did the miners start to grumble. They cussed out Hansen, now that the supervisor wasn't there to hear them. Tommy said nothing. Every member of the crew had said much worse about Wisolowski themselves, but now that the management had singled him out, the wagons would be circled. The guy was a drunk and a slacker even when he made it to the job on time, but he'd been down there in the tunnels with them, and Hansen had probably never had coal dust under his manicured fingernails. At least that's the way they looked at it. Tommy thought the warning to Wisolowski had been more than fair, but he wouldn't dare say so. Jerry Tolland sat next to him on the man trip. He scowled and looked at Tommy. Fucking Hansen. Tommy just nodded, rolling his eyes. Uh, so uh, what did you guys do this weekend? Jerry asked. That brought a smile to his face. I'm building a tree fort for Jake. Ain't much of a carpenter, but it's coming out all right. Took Melissa out to dinner Saturday night to the new place, Evergreen. No place to go for beers, but you want to make your wife happy. Bring her there. Expensive? Uh, not like you'd think. Shit, they know nobody around here can afford expensive. They fell silent after that. Something about the mine had that effect. The deeper they went, the quieter the miners became. It often lasted well into the first hour after work began, until they became acclimated again. Some people might have thought it was fear that made them quiet, but Tommy thought of it as respect. You worked down there in the ground. You had to give the mountain its due. The man trip squealed as it slowed, then rocked them a little as it came to a stop. The crew stepped out of the contraption, cables swaying. There were burned-out lights along the length of the shaft, but down here they were all working perfectly. Not so much as a flicker. When it came to the workspace, they didn't fuck around. The dim yellow light washed over the stone. You smell something? Jerry asked. Tommy didn't. Jerry was always smelling something. Of the entire crew, he was the most paranoid, but nobody thought of it like that. More than once, Al Betts had told his son that paranoia could save his life. So Tommy took another whiff. <laughs> I got nothing. Jerry nodded. Probably just me. McGilvine and I found that methane leak on Friday while we were drilling a bolt hole in the roof. Patched it up ourselves, so I'm not worried about that. But it's got me on edge. I'm never not on edge, Tommy said. They fell into line with the rest of the crew, shuffling down the tunnel and into Shaft 39. 
Tommy's dad shouted something to Nilsen, and the two older guys, closing in on Fifty and the senior members of the crew, laughed in such a way that Tommy knew whatever it was had been filthy. The second shift had a few women on the crew, but they'd never had any. Tommy thought maybe the big bosses knew what they were doing, keeping his father and Nilsen away from women miners. What a combination that would be. They were deep in Shaft 39 when a frown creased Tommy's forehead. He caught a scent that made his nostrils flare and his upper lip curl. It reminded him of the odor that filled the house every time Melissa ran the self-cleaning program on the oven. Jerry Tolland moved up beside him. "'You sure you don't smell something?' "'I smell it now,' Tommy replied. "'What the fuck is that stink?' Someone called from the back of the line, which made Tommy realize that the smell was coming from behind them. A dull wump echoed along the shaft, and the ground shook just once. A kind of grinding noise reached them, and then only silence. Tommy searched the faces of the miners around him and saw them blank. He glanced at his father and saw a momentary flicker of fear before Al Betts recovered from the moment. Holy shit! Rob McIlveen said. Wisolowski put his head into his hands. Oh, we're screwed. Jerry started to cough and then to choke. He covered his mouth and nose, panic in his eyes. Tommy tasted the gas on his tongue, and then black smoke started billowing down the tunnel after them. Fuck, Al said. All right, this way. Everybody with me, and follow procedure. We're gonna be fine. We've just gotta buy ourselves a little time until Hanson gets a team down here to get us out. Nobody but Tommy had seen the flicker of fear in his father's eyes. They all nodded and fell into step behind him. But Tommy couldn't ignore the fact that they were going deeper into the mountain, further away from the surface and clean air with every step. Tommy watched as McGilveen and Jerry Tolland hung a plastic curtain across the shaft. All three of them wore emergency oxygen packs, rescuers, the miners called them, and over the top of Jerry's rescuer, his eyes were wild. His hands shook as he tucked the curtain up as best as he could. A steady, clanging noise came from behind Tommy. He turned and watched as his dad swung a sledgehammer against the plates and bolts that supported the walls and the ceiling of the mine around them. Normally that kind of thing was ill-advised, but right now all they wanted was for someone up above to hear them. By now, there would be a rescue attempt going on. Folks would be looking for some sign of their location. The hammer on metal might be the only way to signal them. Nilsen had found the sledgehammer, but now he sat on the floor against the back of the coal rib, his face covered with a bandana, no rescuer for him. Of the eighteen men, only ten had working oxygen packs. The others were faulty. The guys who had working oxygen packs were taking turns, just like they were taking turns with the sledgehammer. Tommy felt like puking when he thought about it. These things were supposed to save their lives, give them enough air to last until someone could get to them, but nobody bothered to test them now and again to make sure they were working? Someone tapped his arm, and he turned to see that Jerry and McIlveen had gotten the curtain up. What do you think? Jerry asked. Gozy, huh? Just like home, Tommy said. Home. He'd been trying not to think of home, of Melissa and Jake. Had they heard the news by now? 
Would Melissa tell Jake that Daddy was trapped down in the mine? No way. She wouldn't do that to the kid. He was only five years old. But Melissa would be trying to find someone to stay with him so that she can come and stand out there at the mouth of the mine, waiting. She wouldn't be there yet, but soon she'd be out there waiting on him. Tommy didn't want to let her down. When he thought about leaving her alone, leaving Jake to grow up without his dad, his heart hurt so much he thought he might scream. No, better to not think of home. The curtain had created an enclosure about 50 feet square. Not a lot of room for 18 guys. Not a lot of air, even with the curtain up. The guys without working rescuers would suck up the remaining oxygen in no time. Tommy watched his father swinging the sledgehammer. Al Betts had come home from the mine every night, black with coal dust and too exhausted to play very much with his son. Tommy had done his damnedest to be different, to make time for Jake whenever he could. But even with the best of intentions, sometimes he just couldn't. The tree fort wasn't finished yet. Jake had never even asked what would happen if the mine collapsed. At five, the possibility hadn't even occurred to him yet. Somehow he'd managed to avoid the fear that lay always beneath the friendly conversation of the entire community. Tommy hadn't been that lucky. He didn't remember how old he was when he first asked his father about what would happen in a cave-in. He had seen something about it in an old movie on television. Watching his father now, still so strong and grim while closing in on fifty, he remembered the way the man had softened. He'd crouched down to get even with Tommy and ruffled his son's hair. You've got nothing to worry about, Tom Tom. Anything goes wrong down there, the lost miner will get us out. Tommy's eyes had gone wide. The lost miner? That had only been the first time his father told him the story. For years, Tommy had asked for stories of the mysterious ghostly miner. His father had spun tales, mostly of his own invention, but some of them were surely local legend of a man who had died underground and who would always appear to save trapped miners who called to him. By the age of eleven, Tommy had realized that they were only stories, but some part of him had still believed. When his father decided he was too old for such stories, he had felt a terrible loss. Al swung the sledgehammer. He turned to glance at Nilsen and the others who were without oxygen packs, then wiped the sweat from his brow. Al Betts was no ghost, and he wasn't lost, but Tommy thought his old man might be their best hope. He went over to his father and reached out to take the sledgehammer. Have a rest, Dad. Let me take a few whacks. His father nodded slowly and bent over, winded. Tommy stared at him. You all right? <sighs> I will be. Give it a go, Tom. <sighs> As he turned to go and sit with the others against the coal rib, Tommy called to him. Al came back and put his hand on his arm, gave it a brief squeeze. We're gonna be all right. Just gotta hunker down now. Try not to suck up any more air than we need. Sip at it. Make it last. They'll be here. Tommy studied his face, searching for a crack in his father's mask of confidence, but finding none. Maybe it was for his benefit, his and the rest of the crews. But right then, he thought that his father actually felt confident that, 
even with so little air for so many of them, and with the toxins seeping in and around the edges of the curtain, they would be rescued in time. Two miles into the mine, out of contact with the surface, Al Betts believed in salvation. Blind faith. Hey, Dad. Al looked at him over the top of the rescuer's mask. You remember the lost miner? Tommy thought that, behind the mask, his father smiled. I've been thinking about him, too. Did he have a name? The original guy, I mean. The one who died. The older man narrowed his eyes in contemplation a moment. Ostergaard, I think. Something like that. Ostergaard. For some reason, having the name made Tommy feel better. He gripped the handle of the sledgehammer the same way his mind wrapped around the name of the lost miner, something to hold on to. He swung the hammer against a metal support plate, and the clang reverberated up his arms. Tommy barely noticed his father walking away, barely noticed anything at all after that first swing. He counted the hammer blows just to keep his mind busy. At 32, he took a break. Rob McIlveen was sprawled on the floor, a t-shirt over his face. He looked asleep or dead, but the rise and fall of his chest made it clear he was still breathing. In the flickering light, Nilsson had gone awfully pale. He had a rescuer covering his nose and mouth now, getting oxygen, but the way he clutched at his chest, Tommy thought that maybe he was having a heart attack. At 57 strikes of the hammer, Jerry Tolland took over. Tommy hesitated, hating the thought of just sitting there waiting to run out of air, but he could barely lift the hammer anymore. He staggered to the far wall and sat down. After a few minutes, he tried to offer his oxygen pack to Randy Wisolowski, but the guy waved it away. Uh, I just gave mine up a few minutes ago, he said through the front of his sweatshirt, which covered his nose and mouth. Besides... You've been trying to signal, working your lungs. Wouldn't be fair to cut off your air right now. Tommy stared at him a moment, then nodded and slumped back against the wall. He studied the curtain, wondered how toxic the air had become. Above their heads, the tunnel had a thin layer of smoke. Keeping low to the ground was safer, but it wouldn't save their lives. Randy! Wisolowski looked up his reaction time slow, like he'd had too much to drink and might pass out at any second. Hmm? You ever hear about the lost miner? Sure. Everyone knows that story. You don't grow up with a family in the mine and not hear that old tale. So you think it's just a story? Tommy saw the doubt in the man's eyes. Of course it is. Jesus, kid, you better just sit there a bit and soak up some oxygen. But if the story's based on a real guy who died in the mines, how do we know, right? I mean, every legend starts somewhere, right? Wisolowski nodded his brows. Did you miss the part where the guy died? Nine or ten guys had taken turns with the hammer before, at last, none of them were strong enough to lift it. Mickey Levine and Bob Landry had fallen unconscious. 
Bob had been in and out for a while, but nobody could wake McIlveen. They didn't talk much, trying to conserve air. What little conversation took place down there in the heart of the mountain was in whispers, men sharing regrets and fears. Wisolowski talked about the way his drinking had driven his wife, Lorraine, away, and how he would have done it all so differently if he had to do it over. Some of the men were writing notes on scraps of paper from their wallets or on torn pieces of clothing, just wanting to leave something behind, some reassurance or a farewell or a last expression of love. They told each other it was just in case. Just in case. Tommy stared across the small enclosure at his father, and Al stared back, never looking down at Nilsson, who lay with his head on Tommy's dad's lap, unmoving. Christ! Wisolowski said at one point. Is he... Al froze him with a look, and Wisolowski never completed the sentence. That grim expression was answer enough. None of the others had been foolish enough to ask. Or, Tommy thought... Perhaps they just hadn't wanted to acknowledge the death that had already taken place in their midst. Astergard, Tommy said. The name echoed against the stone and the coal rib and the curtain. The men who were still alive and conscious all turned to stare at him. Who's that? Jerry said. The lost miner, Tommy said, pulling the mask of his rescuer down. We've got a call on him. Nobody else is coming, Jer. We're gonna die down here if we don't get some help. Are you fucking thick? Dan Ramos snapped. We telling ghost stories now? You got brain damage from the fucking methane. Tommy blinked. His eyes felt heavy. Gotta call him. He sat up straighter, looked around at the walls, settled his gaze on the coal. Ostergaard! You gotta come, man. We need you now. Ostergaard, we need your help or we're gonna die down here. Tom. His father snapped. Tommy looked at him. Shut it, boy. His old man rasped. It felt like a slap. He flinched, then hunched down a bit. Tommy pulled his rescuer back over his face. He closed his eyes and whispered the name into his mask over and over. Ostergaard. He woke, suffocating. His chest clenched and the muscles in his throat began to seize up. Eyes wide, Tommy reached up and scrabbled at his face, tearing away his mask. The oxygen in his rescuer had run out. He clawed it off and dropped it to the ground. In his mind, he began to roll over and sit up but his body was sluggish in its reply. He managed to lull his head to one side and then prop himself up enough to look around. Sometimes he drank a little, but this wasn't like being drunk. It was more what he imagined it must feel like for people who took too many sleeping pills or Hollywood types into heavy narcotics. The small space between the curtain and the coal ribs seemed to shift and blur. His eyelids felt heavy. Nearby... Wisolowski had curled up into a fetal position, softly crying. Ramo had sprawled onto the stone floor of the tunnel on his face, breathing coming in long, slow hisses, body twitching. 
Jerry Tolland sat against the wall with his knees up under his chin, arms draped over his legs. Staring at him, Tommy frowned. It took him a moment to understand that Jerry was dead. Dad? He whispered. He gazed toward the far wall where his father had been sitting with Nelson. Someone shifted there. In the fading glow of their remaining lights, a hand rose up, his father, signaling that he had not yet breathed his last. But it wouldn't be long for Al Betts. Whatever rescue might be in the offing, it needed to happen now. The sledgehammer lay on the floor, forgotten. Tommy ran out his tongue to wet his lips, opened his mouth in a last prayer. But instead of Jesus, the name that came out of his mouth was Ostergaard. His eyes felt even heavier. He slumped back to the ground, unable to keep himself propped up any longer. As he lay there, listening to the silence, to the weight of the mountain closing in around them, he knew that there would be no rescue. They were alone. Pain began to spread in a band across his chest. Every breath felt more difficult than the last. For several long moments, he succumbed to unconsciousness again. Then, a sound made his eyes flutter open, a low moan accompanied by a hideous choking noise. Again, he rolled his head to the side, searching for the source of that sound. His upper lip curled, and for a moment he ceased breathing at all. A man stood in the midst of the enclosure. He dressed in full mining gear, but wore an old-fashioned sort of miner's helmet with a light on the front and a black gas mask beneath it. A flutter of hope went through Tommy. Him. Barely conscious, he managed to smile. Until that figure leaned down and touched Wisolowski on the shoulder, and the crying man went silent and still. No weeping. Not so much as a shudder of breath. And then the strange figure, a coal-smeared silhouette, began to move through the enclosure, pausing to reach down a comforting hand to the other men. As he passed amongst them, he almost seemed to float, and the edges of the figure blurred like heat haze over summer blacktop. And when he touched them, one by one, they became still. As the lost miner moved toward the coal rib, toward the place where he had seen his father raise one weakened hand, Tommy closed his eyes. He heard a rattling hiss of breath, and then nothing. He felt so cold. Something jostled him awake. Tommy winced at the smell of exhaust. Only vaguely aware of his surroundings, of a sense of motion, he felt the rubber strap against the back of his head and plastic over his nose and mouth. Fucking sick irony, a voice said. Tommy tried to open his eyes. He caught a glimpse of the two paramedics working to keep him alive, and he heard them talking about him, about the sole survivor of the collapse and how if those other poor bastards had lived any longer, he wouldn't have made it either. The only reason he had enough oxygen is because the other guys died first. The ambulance went over another bump, and he felt himself slipping into darkness once more, fading to black. Babe, you all right? Tommy stood just inside the screen door off the kitchen, looking out into the backyard. June had come so fast. He held a cold beer in his hand, the way a child might hold a doll, close against him, fingers wrapped around the neck. Out in the yard, 
Jake ran through the spray of water thrown by the sprinkler, whipping his arms around and cackling like a lunatic. Katie Hoyt from next door followed right behind him. Their laughter did not make him smile, but somehow it seemed to protect him. He felt like if he could record that sound and play it back while he slept, it might keep the dreams away, the nightmares of suffocation. Babe? Melissa touched his arm and he blinked, turning to look at her. You look like you're in a trance, she said, smiling innocently, though her eyes were full of concern. I was. Still a little tired, that's all. She kissed his cheek. Dinner will be ready in a little while. You should get Jake in here, get him into something dry. Tommy nodded. He took a sip of beer and set the bottle down on the kitchen table, then went outside into the backyard. Daddy! Jake called, racing towards him. Once, Tommy might have caught him and dangled the boy away from him to keep from getting wet. Not now. He let Jake jump up into his arms and hug the boy to him. His son wrapped his legs around him, soaking his shirt. Tommy actually laughed. Sorry, Katie, he told the girl. Jake's got to come in for dinner now. Can he come out after? She asked, all wide eyes. Sure. Tommy said, Why don't you run on home and we'll see you in a bit? I think Jake's mom's going to make brownies tonight. Katie took off across the backyard towards her parents' deck, arms out as though she was playing airplane. Tommy set Jake down and shut off the sprinkler, then stood and looked again at his son. Mom wants you to put something dry on. Jake smiled, pointing at him. She's going to want you to put something dry on, too. No doubt. Tommy said. Come here, bud. He hoisted the boy up again and went up to the screen door, letting them inside. Melissa had been watching from the kitchen window, a wistful look on her face. Dry clothes, Jakey, she said. I can do it. I'll get them, the boy said, reaching to be put down. Tommy led him down, and Jake tore through the living room, and then they heard him bounding up the stairs. He'd kick his clothes off onto the carpet of his bedroom and put dry clothes on, but that was all right. They'd pick up the dirty clothes later. Melissa slipped her arms around Tommy and pushed up close. He liked her there, where he could smell her hair and trace his hands along the small of her back. "'It's been so good for him having you home for a while,' she said, her breath warm on his neck. "'It's been good for you, too.' (coughs) "'Yeah,' he said." And that was all. There were so many thoughts he might have shared with her, but Tommy had never been that kind of man. In that, he took after his father. He would have felt like a fool trying to explain to Melissa that the time he spent with Jake seemed to make it easier to deal with his father's death, and to make it harder as well. But he wanted every moment he could have with them, there at home, because the doctor had been very clear about his prognosis. Another week, two at most, and he'd have to go back to work. He'd have to go back down into the mine. Jake came down the stairs and pranced into the kitchen to show off the t-shirt and shorts he'd put on. The shirt was backwards, but Tommy didn't mention it. The kid was so damned proud of himself. The t-shirt had a bunch of trucks on it. Jake loved building things, and even at five, thought the coolest job in the world had to be making bridges and skyscrapers. I want to build a whole city, 
he said once, not long ago. Good job, buddy, Tommy said. Dinner! Jake commanded, slipping into his seat at the table and picking up his fork and knife, ready to eat. Yes, your majesty, coming right up, Melissa said, rolling her eyes with a soft chuckle. Then brownies, Jakey cried. But of course. Tommy had to control the temptation to talk about the trucks on Jake's shirt, one of which was a crane. Melissa had already pointed out how much she'd been harping the past couple of weeks on the construction thing. Jake was only five, she'd said. He'd change his mind almost daily about what he wanted to be when he grew up. Tommy had told her that all he wanted was to make sure Jake went to college. No one in his family had ever been to college. College somewhere far away from West Virginia, away from the mine. He wanted his son to grow up, to get a job doing something he loved, something that would make him happy. Hopefully. But if not, Tommy wanted Jake to do something he hated. Anything, really, except following in Daddy's footsteps. Anything except the mine. But college cost a lot of money. Nobody in the Betts family had ever gotten that kind of education. Hell, Tommy was the first one to finish high school. They were a mining family, like so many others in the area. The odds were against them, and against Jake finding a different sort of life for himself. And so, tonight, before bed, Tommy would tell Jake the first of the stories. Oh, he'd been telling his son stories almost every night the past couple of months. All kinds of stories. But as of tonight, he would, from time to time, include tales of the ghost of a lost miner named Ostergaard. He would tell them as best as he could, make them as real as possible. It wouldn't be difficult. Jake loved ghost stories. But Tommy had to make absolutely certain that his son believed. Just in case... Thank you for that, Chris. Among Christopher Golden's novels are The Myth Hunters, Wildwood Road, The Boys Are Back in Town, The Ferryman, Strangewood, Of Saints and Shadows, and, with Tim LeBone, The Map of Moments. Speaking of collaboration, Chris says he is a lifelong fan of teaming up and frequently collaborates with other writers on books, comics, and scripts. In addition to his recent work with Tim, he co-wrote the lavishly illustrated novel Baltimore, or The Steadfast Tin Soldier and the Vampire, with Mike Mignola. And there are many more. With Amber Benson, he co-created the aforementioned online animated series Ghosts of Albion and co-wrote the book series of the same name. As an editor, he's worked on the short story anthologies The New Dead and British Invasion. Thanks again for a terrific story, Chris. Said terrific story, Breathe My Name, was read for us tonight by old friend of the nook, Joe San Marco. And thank you again, Joe. I think this is your seventh or eighth evening with us, 
That's just fine with me. Just keep coming. Keep reading. Joe San Marco is 25. He's from Los Angeles, but now lives in, of all places, Harrisburg, PA. And I have stories about Harrisburg, PA, that I will never share with anyone. He proudly considers himself a geek with a soft place in his heart for fantasy, science fiction, horror, and PS3 gaming. By now, he's narrated at least a few dozen stories for The Starship Sofa and Us, and is focused on becoming a professional voice actor for animated films and gaming. So, if you need a voice for whatever project you have, get a hold of Joe, the which you can do by connecting with him on the site that I have posted on our homepage, TalesToTerrify.com. And that will be that for this evening. Be prepared, please. It is a lovely 60-something in here, yes, but across that threshold, yes, the air is liquid mug and the heat would shimmer the world if the world were light enough for a shimmer. Ah, well, you'll make it home. Nothing to worry you out there. The things abroad out in that night are too stifled to bother you. When you get home, though, and you finish your rituals of sleep, make sure the covers are off the bed. You would not want to wake in the middle of a pitch-black and silent night, a blanket having found its way round your face and giving rise to thoughts of deep, dark holes in the ground that swallow you. That would, of course, spoil a night of purely pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.